Hello again, friends. Welcome or welcome back to the Overview Effect with James Perrin, the podcast all about having big, philosophical, intimate conversations with incredible people, not just about what they do, but who they are, the moments that have shaped them, and how they see the world. I'm your host, James Perrin. I would like to start by acknowledging that today's episode was recorded on a Rockwell country in Bundjalung Nation. I want to pay respects to members of the Bundjalung community and First Nations people all around Australia. Now, I have a very important question for you. What do you think will happen when you die? Do you contemplate your own death? the death of your loved ones, maybe your partner or even your kids? Do you consider what you would do and how you would feel in those situations? It might sound weird for me to ask you those questions, but why? Death is the most natural part of life. We're all going to die at some stage. It should be one of the most familiar parts of our society. Yet, for whatever reason, we shield ourselves from death. Think about it. We tell our children lies about the dog running away. We put blankets or sheets over bodies at the hospital. We allow private companies to take our loved ones away and bury or cremate them for us, thus separating us from that natural process. My guest today is a death walker or a death doula. She works with people who are dying, dead or bereaved and she helps to usher them through the process of death dying, both the philosophical and emotional elements, as well as the practical and legal options of what we can do in those situations. In this conversation, we cover a lot of things, including how the medical system sees death as a failure and the influence that that has on our society. We talk about the language around having a battle or a fight with death as if we're somehow fighting with nature, thus separating us from it. We talk about the patriarchy and how we live in a world run by boys, not real men and women, and the influence of commercialization of the death industry. Again, how it disconnects us from the process, but also those emotions that we naturally go through when we are around death in a normal way. We talk about her experiences as a child and the small moments that have added up over time to make her stand up for who she is and what she believes in. And like so many things, we talk about how we can question the status quo and take responsibility of and accountability for what happens in our life, including navigating death. Yes, this was a beautiful conversation. She is a very wise soul. I think you're just going to love it. Please enjoy this one with Zenith Virago. Happy for us to just dive straight in. All right. Well, Zenith, thank you so much for having me and welcome to the show. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Um, It's... It's wonderful, as we were just saying, it's wonderful to meet and have these discussions in person. I've been following you and your work for some time, um, inspired by, uh, you know, your, your article in Dumbo Feather or your interview on Dumbo Feather, your TED Talk. We've got some mutual friends, so I'm very grateful to be able to have this conversation with you today. And 
what I the premise of the show, the reason I, I do it, it's called the overview effect, which is this experience that astronauts have or they describe when they go up into space and they look back on Earth and they get this wow paradigm shift in the way that they see and interact with our world. And I, I guess from an engineering background, I was quite inspired by that and I'm inspired by the you know, these moments in our life that can shape us and help us see the world differently in, I guess, a bit more of an irrational or spiritual or emotional connection to the world. And so I like to have these big picture conversations around that. And I always like to start by asking my guests for a bit of a personal story. Have you had a moment in your life or an experience or a period of time that has really shaped or dramatically altered the way you see and interact with our world? Well, because I've lived a long time, which is part of a conversation we were having just before, I've had several, I've been very fortunate to have several moments like that. And sometimes it's something that happens on the outside, on the external, but sometimes it's something that happens on the inside. And, um, but my favorite, I'll just start with the first one, which mm. was when I was about seven and I was uh, one of the best soccer players at school because I was a tomboy and was very fit and active and it was fun. Soccer was always fun. And when the team got picked and we looked on the board, I wasn't in that team. And I said to the teacher, I said, how come I'm not in the team? And he looked at me and he said, because you're a girl, just (laughs) like that. And I, I just stood there and in that moment, I just had this total revelation that if that's how stupid the world was that it picked people on gender rather mm. than that what who was the best person for the job and and all the consequences of that it was just like a clunk 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 moment even as a child i just thought okay if that's how the, stupid the world is i'm never going to lose because i'm a girl i don't have to win but i'm never going to lose and so in that moment I became a feminist without knowing <laughs> that what that was at the time but that decision has really guided my whole life it's been a compass for me as they say now that's a popular term for that of of fairness of integrity just social justice uh, personal justice and all of those qualities that go with that and um, and of Another time, the one that harnessed itself to that was I won't be complicit in my silence. So I have a voice and I'm going to use it. Mm. And so I'm always outspoken. I'm not attached to the outcome, but I'm attached to not being silent because the more you practice that, the better at it you get. So the more you practice speaking up for injustice or whatever it is, the better at it you get. The more you practice swallowing something down, the better at that you get. And so, mm. you know, these are small things, but they're, they're aspects of who we are and who we become. And now in my 60s, I see that my life has allowed me to become the very best person that I can be and that fortunately involves a lot of benefit to others so it's about being feeling good on the inside and it's also about doing good in the world Mm. it's amazing hearing some of those stories 
and some people might say they might hear your your story of playing soccer and go oh yeah but it was just a soccer team you know it's but the it's so much more than that it's what it means and the ripple effect of how that mentality plays out in every other aspect of life so it's really it's really interesting to to hear how people have moments from something seemingly rather simple mm. but how that can have really profound implications on the way that we live our life yeah so and our lives are full of those small decisions so you know you're talking about the big overview mm. um but it's it's often all the it's the small moments that contribute to that mm. it's you know the, it's a dance it's a dance between the two i love that i love that and i and I know for anyone listening that doesn't know you and your work, or at least your your work you've done in the more recent decades of your life, um, can you explain a little bit about what some what is a death walker, and how does one how did you become a death walker? So a lot of people listening may be familiar now with the term death doula because that's becoming in common usage Mm. but I live in the Byron Shire I moved here 35 years ago and about over 25 years ago a friend of mine died suddenly in the garden and I went to visit her husband that day her body had been taken to the hospital and I said to him, you know, we could do this ourselves. We don't need to give her to strangers after she comes back from the autopsy. And with that, I discovered how to bury your own dead without using a funeral director, the legal paperwork involved, and a whole range of things. And from there, it just had a life of its own. So I have become what I would say um, a community resource within this shire and beyond for people who want to ask questions about what their social and legal rights are, about how they can die, especially if they want to die at home, what happens at that moment of death and then after death body care and then about ceremony and then about disposal about burial or cremation. So it's very possible in New South Wales, the state that we live in, and other states and elsewhere in the world, to keep a continuity of care for someone who's dying right the way through until they are either in the ground or in a cremator. And that really helps towards a healthier bereavement and so I took the term for many years people said what do you do and I said oh I work with people who are dying dead or bereaved Mm. and probably for about 10 years I said that because that's that's what I did and I didn't have a name for it and then I started to realize that what I was doing was walking that journey with people so when they were dying, when someone had died, if that was suddenly or expectedly, or if they were bereaved. And so I just coined the phrase a death walker because I'm not actually doing anything for them. What I'm trying to do is get them to tap into their inherent capacity to do death well because we all have it. It's just become unfamiliar 
and mm. it, 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 like lots of things it's been taken away and it becomes like a secret bank of knowledge but following on from my soccer story is I also have a thing that if men can do it it has to be easy <laughs> this is true I and would say that's a very true statement and so the funeral industry was at that point um, very ruled by the patriarchy and it was mostly employed men and so I looked at that and I thought oh well if if they're doing that, it has to be easy. <laughs> and so, but now there's a massive shift, you know, and there are lots of funeral companies owned by women. And it's been a really great revolution, evolution in the last 25 years, just like reclaiming birth yes, back into home birth and empowering women in a hospital situation, not to just say, oh, okay, and feel helpless. And so it's the same for death and death awareness. So to know what your legal rights are, what the options are, so people can consider them and then make decisions that are right for them. Mm. So some people will want to die at home, some people will want to die at hospital because that's the sort of level of care they need. But it's the difference is that people understand the process and what they can do to participate in that process rather than just be shipped along on some, you know, hospital bed conveyor belt. And, mm. you know, before they know it, they're in the morgue and then before they know it, that body's in the ground. And then people look back and say, oh, God, I can't remember any of that. I was so shocked because the people supporting them weren't encouraging them to participate in it. Mm. There's a there's a parallel here between your soccer story and and what you're talking about in in taking responsibility and accountability for our death process because what I what I hear in your soccer story is that not just accepting oh well that's just the way it is exactly <laughs> so that those moments that moment that led you to all those other moments in your life where you would stand up for yourself and mm. question the the patriarchy and the normal way it is mm. is exactly what led you to become in this line of work too that's right and by the time i was about 11 i realized that because i practiced speaking up i and i had a voice and my parents fortunately for me supported that so I learned that if I spoke up and gave a good reason why or good argument for something I would be listened to and and then there would be a decision made but I also realized that someone like me had to speak up for those who didn't have a voice or who were unable to speak up for mm. whatever reason so I quite quickly became an advocate even at school for people who I, I because I thought everyone was like this. I thought everyone had that capacity. But I, could, I learned that it was something that people have to grow. And of course, we all know what can be happening in some families. And so that voice and that person becomes diminished rather than grown. Mm. And I feel that, that all those decisions that you make as children and that our parents support us to become the best people that we can be uh you you can't underestimate the power of that as you grow up that you're building on those things all the time and i'm forever encouraging children and in australia that put down 
which is a sort of familiarity. And mm. really sometimes people are saying, oh, God, I love you. You're great. But what they're saying is something else, like, oh, don't be too big for your boots or, yeah. you know, who do you think you are? And, and that's so diminishing to children. We really need to watch our language and what we're actually saying. It's fascinating, isn't it? We, we, we're really good at... Um, uh, do you think it comes from society at large? Um, the I guess you could say that the patriarchy, the elite, the corporates, the government, whatever you want to call it, um, that are essentially trying to diminish people's voices, or does it come more from a societal point of view of we want to fit in and we don't want to be seen as speaking out and being different because then we potentially leave ourselves open to not being part of the group. Do you know what I mean? I think it's probably a combination of all of those. But, for example, if you spend any time in America, now Americans really lift each other up. They say, that's great. You go, girl. You know, you can do it. And they're really uplifting. Mm. And you tell them an idea and people are totally there behind you as opposed to, I grew up in England, but which has a class system, which diminishes other things. But in Australia, that whole tall poppy syndrome, mm. I think, is really impactful on how Australians grow up. And you see it manifest in women in one way and a different way in men. But sometimes it's, um, it's like the, the dumber you are, the more you're going to be accepted. And you he I hear it in men all the time to each other. And also because I spent 25 years marrying, um, you know, two and a half thousand couples in this shire. And I learned a lot about gender in those because that is one of the most intimate moments you can have in public. So people are having lots more intimate moments, but they're generally having those in private between themselves as a couple. But when people are choosing to get married in front of witnesses, in front of their family and friends, they are really standing in their intimacy together. And that's also a dance. Mm. And, and I could see that often the best men would say things to the groom when they were waiting for the bride to arrive. And what they were really saying was, mate, I love you. But what they were saying, things like, oh, it's not too late. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> but, and so it, it's, I think the Australian cultural conditioning is, is pretty devastating mm. for men and for boys mm. and for women and girls. And, and uh, this is ex not at all where I thought this conversation would go, but I'm always happy for tangents. <laughs> um, when we talk about the, the patriarchy, my reflection or my perspective on the patriarchy is that it's not actually men, it's boys that are running the show. It's not actually real men. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And um, boys, it's more like a princedom. And boys are afraid of strong women. They're mm. also afraid of strong mm. real men too. Mm. And that's a really interesting point of view that you raise. We, you're right. In Australia, we have this, and it's even worse with the influx of social media. I yes. think it just takes away totally. our. Totally. It, it 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 takes away that human connection, and 
means that people can say and do things that they would never say to someone's face, That's looking right. them in the eye. Shocking. And and it gears them to say more extreme things because that's what gets noticed. But And it's a buffiness, it's a bravado. But So while we're saying that, I would say that for me, there's a great hope in the men of your generation, you know, in young men coming up who are also being much more involved with their children and are really changing that conversation and are really rejecting that old way of being and there's they're creating a new way the whole you know it started i think some years ago with that whole metrosexual approach where men started to look after themselves a bit which is a very european way Mm. but in australia it was frowned upon but and i mean we all lose we all yeah girls and women lose because of of the system but men and boys really lose because they don't get to become whole people and they don't get to relate to a partner, whatever gender that partner might be, from a whole place. Mm. And, and, and it diminishes people, that system. And we see it in our government. We look at those men and you just think, where is your humanity? Yeah. Where is your compassion? Where are all those qualities? Because they're so busy being buffy and mm-hmm. cruel, actually, very cruel. Which is what they've been encouraged to be throughout right. their that's, childhood that's and the life. That's the measure of success mm. in that system. So I just want to stop there because yeah. and bring and and let you go back to the <laughs> to where you want to take it. So no, no, that's fine. That's it. But I'm I'm really glad for these tangents, and that's another conversation that perhaps we or um, I can have on the show at another time. But sure. thank you for that. Well. I guess linked to it though, what I did want to ask you was in your experience with death and I guess the death industry, I guess it's linked to the patriarchy and to a lot of these other approaches in life, but how how would you describe our current society in general's current relationship with death and how the death industry, I suppose you could call it, has influenced that? Well, I'm just going to tell a little story mm, and go back a bit so we can get a perspective so in the past maybe 200 years ago before there was a death industry in itself families always looked after their own they generally lived in the same sort of uh, geographical area in the same town they didn't travel very much whatever so when someone was dying they died at home there weren't big hospitals and the family cared for them and then they would take them and bury them in the cemetery on the outskirts of town and that's the way it's always been and that's the way it is still in some cultures that don't have access to hospitals and pharmaceuticals and all of that so then hospitals arise so when I was growing up there were many people said oh I'm not going to hospital because you never come out and people didn't say the word cancer they said the c word but gradually all that has changed now it's almost impossible and when my generation die that memory will also die and so we'll think that hospitals are where you go and the funeral industry is how uh, that death is taken care of But fortunately for us, there's been this incredible revolution in the last 25 years. People like me, mostly old hippies, feminists, um, 
old midwives, some of us from the queer community who were involved with HIV AIDS and watching lots of young men die and, and putting that whole system out of whack. You know, like a war does that as well mm. because you've got these this whole generation of people that die not old. They die young and that affects a lot of our understanding and our thoughts around dying and a natural order of things it, with, because there is no natural order of things actually it's just a concept that makes us feel better that we're going to live a long time and we're going to get old and then we're going to die but we all know we're all affected by people who have chosen to kill themselves we all probably know a child that has died through one way or another and that we know that lots of people from 25 to 40 die of cancer so there is no natural order. You're lucky if you get to live a long life. <laughs> but with that, the funeral industry that became, because it was mostly dominated by men, also find emotions and expressions of emotions very confronting because they haven't developed their own fully. Yes. And so instead of thinking, that's great, you just cry that out because of course you're going to cry because that is your love transformed and and that's the pain that you are feeling at the loss of that person in your life. They wanted to close that down really quick. And so that's, that's the culture around death. But that, that's so dissatisfying for so many people. So lots of people at the same time as me, uh, so in the 80s, started to reclaim that back. And now in Australia, we have Tender Funerals, which is a not-for-profit funeral set up in Port Kembla and reaching out all over Australia. There are lots of individual people who are creating funeral services, home funeral services, funeral directors that are men and women who just want to do it differently. But there are a lot more women involved. And so they're getting better care when you go in to the kitchen table or to the office table to talk about that situation, especially if it's been a sudden death and you're in shock. Mm. You want caring and compassion. You don't want efficient and tidying it up. Um, and so I think that we're very lucky now because if, and you can find it on the internet. So you can reach out. And I spend a lot of time doing podcasts like this for people like you and I also spend a lot of time talking to people on the phone that I never meet who just want to find out information and what their options are. And they want, because they know inherently that this system isn't how it has to be. They, they want to be able to do it in a way that w they'll feel better of. So we all know about cardboard coffins. We all know about decorating coffins. We know about natural burial grounds because media is very curious about external things, things that you can see. But really, death is an inside job. It happens on the inside of your body. Your heart stops beating. You know, your lungs stop breathing but also your mind stops functioning. And so we, that's where we, we can look at all the great things we can do on the outside, but one of the best things we can do on the inside is start to know 
that there's a possibility that we might die at any time, mm. that we won't all get to live a long time. And that also applies to our partners, our loved ones, and also our children. And if we practice our spatial capacity for allowing that into our awareness over and over again, like a little, like a minute a day, for example, when we're sitting meditating or we're sitting in mindfulness, which I, of course, never do. <laughs> but um, even if you're sitting on your surfboard out mm. and thinking, fuck, how lucky am I that I get to be communing with nature like this or walking in the bush, whatever you do, just take a moment in that time to contemplate how it might be if you die or how it might be if your loved ones die. Because what that will give you is a little bit of resilience that you'll be growing a muscle that if that situation does arise, you'll have some capacity to deal with it. But especially if it happens for someone else, like a friend of yours, it's, they're mostly affected by that. You will be able to walk with them in that journey and accompany them and not be afraid to do that. And you'll be able to guide them when they're floundering. And just like you would want someone to do that for you. Mm. And that's what an empowered, death-aware community can do for each other. And I, it was my dream that there would always be someone in each community, whatever that community was made up from, that would hold that death awareness and be able to support their own. And because I've spent the last 25 years teaching and sharing and talking at any invitation, <laughs> more and more people are aware of that and lots of other people not just me mm. but it's like by the time we finish this conversation and for the people who are listening to this their awareness is going to be expanded and their capacity is expanded and keep going keep going with that so that it will be beneficial if you need it so it's a bit like first aid it's mm. a bit like last aid. Everyone hopes they never need to do CPR. But if you do, you're really glad you know it. And it's, if you come into a situation where someone has died suddenly, it really assists you to be present and, and then proceed from that place. Mm. Wonderful. And, and I think... Do you think that uh, what I'm hearing from you is that there there has been this movement, and I undoubtedly agree with you that there has been this growing awareness of how to be more mindful, be more conscious, be more um, responsible, I guess, for the way that we manage ours, our death and the death of our loved ones around us. And particularly those moments, I guess those more acute moments of when a death occurs and what to do around that. Thinking from a societal level, do you think that it, we seem to be so death averse, though? It seems to be so hidden from, like, everything that we try to do in society seems to be geared around minimizing death. And even we hear it now in the media every day, we hear the death toll, you know, from, mm. from this pandemic. And that's, the, that's kind of the measure of success or failure is the death count. And it just seems like it's been reduced or simplified to just a number or the amount of deaths. And it's almost like that's seen as a failure. And the, the success or failure hinges on what that number is. 
do you think that there there needs to be more of a conversation around i guess approach to life <laughs> yeah i think that i think i'll say this and we'll see where we go mm. so but yes that concept that death is a failure is very common because it's a fear and it's also entrenched in the medical system mm. unless you're a palliative care worker that death is a failure but we need to reframe that and see that death is a natural and sacred part of our lives and it is our birthright it's something that is going to happen to us and to everyone that we love at some stage but what we're dealing with at the moment is people are being killed by a disease and death and killing are two different things so and we all die by something mm. you know something kills us but we don't use the word killing because it's that's conf- so death cause I'm very familiar with I'm banding that about in every conversation but it, it's it's when something and there's a phrase at the moment um death by suicide and I find that really unhelpful to people because suicide doesn't kill you not like covid kills you because what suicide means is that it means to kill oneself it just means it in latin so that's so people inst- every time you use the word suicide you are saying they've killed themselves or they've killed oneself but you're not acknowledging that that person has made a choice to do that or an action so when people say oh it's the worst thing in the world i I often confront that by saying no actually I don't think when someone kills themselves that's not the worst thing. I think being murdered or killed deliberately by someone else is much worse because they haven't made a choice to mm. die. And and that's part of what it's that hazy language and it's this hazy concepts and it's sort of like a magic trick. It's sort of illusionary. but we really need to be language of really the older i get the more i try to be very clear with my language and actually say what i mean and say what is most helpful but you know death is not a failure in that way but that concept is and it's a, we we need to become more familiar we need to talk about it more we really need to unpack it and explore it more and that's i think why people are interested in talking to me mm. and listening because i'm very familiar with that and it's that familiarity that is lost to people because it's tied it up so quickly or it's kept behind a different um a, a sort of curtain like when you died in hospital years ago they mm. would pull the curtains around and what happens in aged care in a lot of aged care facilities when people die is they put all the other residents in their rooms and then they wheel out that dead body now those people have lived in that home together for some years they 
they all know the only way they're getting out of the aged care facility is on a trolley when they've died or on a trolley going to emergency. So it's so disrespectful to people to hide death from them. And we've got this protectionist approach. So the medical system tries to protect us. The legal system tries to protect us. Adults try to protect children. But it is a complete disservice. And adults really need to be honest and real with children about death from the very beginning because children have an incredible capacity. So all those parents, when the dog dies, who say, oh, the dog ran away. Mm. I mean, that is so... You are lying. Mm -hmm. That is not a kindness. Because you need to grow children's capacity to understand that death does occur. Mm. Because sooner or later it's going to come... And it's going to be a shock. It's like getting measles as an adult. You know, you need to have those childhood diseases so the impact is less when you're a child than it is when you're an adult. And I meet people who are in their 40s who say, I've never lost someone close to me. And I say, that's a blessing and a curse because you've got no familiarity and you've grown no resilience for those emotions that are going to come when when someone you love dies mm. or is killed why do you think we why do you think we we have that approach to you know covering someone up to telling our kids <laughs> that, that the dog ran away why do you think i guess it's unconsciously for the majority of people we do that is it because we're essentially largely society at large scared of death and scared of dying i think it's it's a range of things and I think everybody would only need to sit with their own cup of tea and explore <laughs> that for themselves and they'll find the answer to that. Mm. I mean, it's not, I mean, there are some obvious answers obviously, but I, I don't think we need to go much further <laughs> than we, you know, people will can work that out for themselves. And then once you work out what it is that you're afraid of or that you find confronting or challenging, then rise to that challenge so for example extreme sports people are great teachers about death Mm. because when you take up an extreme sport you have to have a conversation with the people who love you because you know that there's a risk that you might die doing that sport and when occasionally people die doing that sport whether it's mountain climbing or something even more fabulous, you see the people on TV or on the radio standing there, often with a young child, saying they died doing something that they love. Mm. And we honour that. They honour that by what they're saying and they really mean it on the inside. So they don't want that person to die, but they because they have been preparing for that moment, and that preparation is standing them in good stead in the ability to be able to deal with that death now it has occurred. Mm. And that is what we need to be doing. We, and that's what people used to have. People, you know, but what we've got now is this distorted um, perspective because people are often they're dying and their medication comes in or surgical 
or something, some sort of intervention, and people don't die. So we're starting to become affected by this sort of illusion that we're always going to be saved, mm. and death is actually not going to come. Mm-hmm. And that's very tricky. And you see it particularly with old people, where they something saves them and they keep living and even my friend who was here before had a lot of people have heart situations where you know they get a stent they get a bypass they get a pacemaker and they live for another 20 years but um so our perspective that people will always uh, um, the medical system will be able to save them yes and so when the medical system can't save them, we see it as a failure. When the treatment that we're getting for cancer doesn't work anymore, we s- it's failed. And we you often hear that phrase, oh, they battled. They've lost their battle mm. with a disease. And that's that language is not helpful because... Yeah. S- because then you see it as a loser. You're a loser. Well, you, and, and you make an enemy of death, exactly. right? You, make a, you create a warlike mentality, a, a fight, an us versus them, mm. a, a fight against nature. And mm. I'm, it's funny, I'm having a parallel here with a conversation I had with, um, with Ollie Costello, who founded Fire Sticks Indigenous Alliance, around fire and approach and relationship mm. to fire and language around that and saying fire fighting, you know, is, is creating this us versus them against nature mm. and i'm here i'm i'm it's coming up for me a parallel here mm. with that language a battle with yeah cancer a battle with death it's a it's a battle with nature yeah whereas really it's about managing or responding or but i think we see that in the police force in particular where it used to be the police service but now it's the police force mm. and the armed forces and so it's very, conf- you know, it's very confrontational, mm. and um, I think we all suffer yeah. from that those concepts. Oh, there's a whole other rabbit hole there. But <laughs> yeah, I'm not going. I there. won't go there either. But <laughs> there's 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 one more line of questioning I want to I really want to ask you about. Go for it. Which is, you've spent so much time obviously around people and their loved ones dying, and in those last moments, days, weeks of their lives, and those really must be really intimate quite profound moments i'm really curious to understand or to hear from you what what do people usually say what do they reflect on what do they what do they think is going to happen to them something that we don't often see in society which you must have a lot of familiar familiarity around is what do people go through in those moments I don't know the answer to that because I'm not on the inside of those people. So we're we're lucky if we know what we're feeling and thinking, never mind mm. what someone else is doing. But what I do know is that if I only have one chance to ask one question because of a time or because of a capacity issue where somebody only has enough energy or strength or voice to answer something small, then the question that I think is the most valuable to ask is what do you think will happen when you die? Mm. And that can be accentuated by what do you think will happen when you die? So not we're not talking in general. We're talking about you, the person who has experienced that dying journey that's lived and has now been dying and now is looking at death as an imminent 
experience for them. And most people have a belief in what will happen. Occasionally people say the body's organic and when it dies, that's it. I don't believe in anything else. And I honor that. And sometimes people say, well, I think I will meet people uh, who have gone before, who have died before, or I think that I will become part of nature, or I will expand into everything, or I will meet my God, or I'll go to heaven, or I haven't met anyone who said I'm going to hell, but uh, (laughs) if you're holding that concept of heaven, I suppose you have to be holding that, but I personally haven't heard anybody respond in that way otherwise I would have explored that with them a bit mm. but um, but generally people people have something that they are imagining and the reason I ask that question is because pretty much without fail their answer to that question makes it much easier for the people who love them and often they'll be in that room when I'm asking that question in amongst other things. Uh, and I, I, you can feel that relief because sometimes if people are leaving small children behind, they will say, oh, I'll be, I'll be around, I'll be looking out for you, mm-hmm. you know, or you'll see me in, and sometimes it's poetic, you know, you'll see me in rainbows, you know, you'll see me in the surf, you'll see me, whatever. But, no one knows what happens when we die and it's those beliefs that offer us comfort and that comfort serves the person who is dying and it also serves the people who love them and for me from listening to all those and being with all those people, what I know is that I it's made me become very present so that when I die, I don't miss it. So I don't want to miss that moment when my body dies and something happens mm. or not. So I think, you know, there might not be anything and that'll be fine. Then I won't have missed anything. But if there is something, if if we do have an energy, a consciousness, a spirit, a soul, whatever, and that leaves the body somehow and does something else and we have a whole new experience, I do not want to miss that moment. And so I have spent the last maybe 15 years of my life directly as a result of being with so many dying people of being very present so that if I'm going to get wiped out in, in a car accident or anything or in a risky anything, I'm going to experience that moment of death fully. And so much so that, you know, I was in the Himalayas traveling. We were on this rickety bus in the Man- out of Manali. And, you know, one of those where it's a, you know, a kilometer drop down into the valley and, you know, it, it, it's hair raising. And I just thought, I'm not going to be in the bus. I'm going to travel on the roof because if that bus goes over the edge, I do not want to be tumbling down in the bus. I want to be flying mm. off the roof 
down into that valley so I can have that experience fully knowing that I'm going to die at the end but I will have however long that takes before I smash into the rock to to have that transitional experience rather than being like in an aeroplane or on a bus with people screaming yeah because I will not be screaming I will be paying attention to whatever is happening and that would be my wish for most people or anybody who wanted it rather than to be screaming in fear of that of what's coming rather than being open to that possibility i love it that's beautiful and maybe that's a beautiful place to to land it to be honest because any more <laughs> questions after that i don't think will live up <laughs> and i guess i just want to say zena thank you so much for having this type of conversation with me and with everyone you know you 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 do a lot of um podcasts you do a lot of community work your your line of work is really amazing and really inspiring and really meaningful and and adds value to a lot of people's lives and deaths and i just want to say thank you for all of that as well Mm, thank you but it's really you know it's been an incredible journey and I see that part of my purpose is all those little decisions that you make all the way through your life have 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 come together to be to be something of benefit to the community and how I am now is I respond. So if people ask me for something and it's within my power or capacity to give it, I just say yes and that uh, you know, the, I probably started doing that maybe 20 years ago, and I cannot tell you the amount of interesting and beautiful things and people that I've met from just saying yes to any invitation that people invite. And you know, and when life offers you a wave, to catch that because it's effortless. Then, so if, here I am. We're sitting on a veranda we're having an hour's conversation but that can that's rippling out Mm. you know your your curiosity your desire to to do more than just you know wonder about it to have those conversations with people and to share them in technology and allow that because you never know where that's going to land and then what the ripples and that's your I've really fallen in love with the mystery. That has been the biggest the biggest gift for me. I've had lots of g- gifts from death. But the biggest one is to fall in love with the mystery and the not knowing mm. and to be able to just be in a sort of spontaneous joy of of the unknown and of of how incredibly fortunate it is to have a human life. And especially if you're not living in a war zone or you're not living in a violent, you know, threatening experience, which the majority of us aren't. And, and to have compassion for those that are, but to, to do something, bene- whatever it is, to do something beneficial and contribute to a better world. Beautiful. Really wonderful, really wonderful conversation. I could talk with you for many more cups of tea, I think. Um, but you've yeah it's it's been a wonderful conversation it's been wonderful getting to meet you and you've actually really 
put me in a completely different frame of mind for the rest of my day and perhaps much longer. So thank you. Thank you.